Welcome to the Game Changers, a subseries of the Mac PFD Spark podcast, created in collaboration with the Merit Program in the Faculty of Health Sciences. In Game Changers, we explore stories of bold, visionary individuals who inspire and affect change in academia. Their stories of forging new paths and of paving the way for others to advance equity, diversity, inclusion, and indigenous reconciliation. We welcome you to engage with, be energized by, and enjoy the latest episode of The Game Changers. I'd like to welcome Dina Brooks to our conversation today. Dina, I'm so glad to have you here. And before we start our conversation, I wanted to share a brief background bio for you. Dina Brooks is the Vice Dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences and Executive Director of the School of Rehabilitation Sciences. Dina is an established researcher known for her work in chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, and cardiovascular rehabilitation. Her aging research focuses on rehabilitation and aging, specifically the role of exercise and the impact of multimorbidity. Dina is a fellow of the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences, a recipient of the Enid Graham Award, and a recipient of the Queen's Jubilee Medal for her research on lung disease. Welcome, Dina. It's really nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. To start off our conversation, I'd like to take us back to the early days of your career. As you were considering your the professional direction, making career choices, how did you choose your academic or professional path at that time? So it's an interesting story because I didn't grow up here and I grew up in Lebanon. And when I was eight years old, the war started in Lebanon and it was a civil war. And then it was other kinds of war, but there were wars. So between the ages of eight and 16 or 15, there was war on in terms of my younger life. And one of the things that my sister and I did to have some hope was to volunteer in the hospital. And uh, we volunteered in an American hospital. And there I got to meet a physiotherapist. It was probably one of the very, very few physiotherapists in Lebanon at the time. And I got to watch her work with a lot of the people who had been injured from, from bombs, from who had lost their legs, uh, lots of amputees, lots of war injuries. And I thought, wow, like this is so incredibly uh, impressive what she did and how she impacted people's lives and how she changed their lives. And thinking, oh, this is what I want to do when I grow up. But at the time, we're in the war. We're in an Arab country where not, women have a lot less opportunities than we have here. And I didn't really think it was possible. Luckily, uh, when, in, when I was 16, a Canadian embassy was able to give us a refugee status and we were able to come to Canada. And I was able to pursue this dream of becoming a physiotherapist. So that was always kind of the dream of what I wanted to do for a living. Wow. That's incredible. I didn't know that you grew up in Lebanon and had that experience. And I'm thinking even as we were preparing to interview you, I was thinking of the ways in which you have demonstrated being an effective change agent and how your early life influences may have affected that. I wonder In addition to the formative experiences that you had in Lebanon, and then coming here to Canada, 
and then initiating your training as a physiotherapist. Were there other key milestones in your career that led you on a particular career path or perhaps redefined or refined your career decisions? Yeah, there was an, another really key moment and probably also shaped not just my career progression, but also the way I think about things in life. Uh, so I went into physio school and at the time you were able to do one year of undergrad and then you had a three-year physio degree. So it was an undergrad degree, it wasn't a master's. And by then I didn't speak English when we came. So I, my English was still not the greatest. Um, my, you know, our family, it was my direct, my immediate family, my mom and my dad, and my sister who'd come here. So it was a bit of financial hardship, but my parents were very positive thinkers and wanted us to go to university for both me and my sister. So when I finished my physio degree, the chair of the department asked to meet with me and I was totally intimidated, but she said to me, you should consider going to graduate studies. And I said, well, I don't know what graduate studies is. Also, I financially, I can't. My family needs the income. Um, also, my English is very good and I can't write very good. And she was really a mentor because the, real, the coach, the mentor, the sponsor, now we have names for them. But at the time, huh. I wouldn't have known that's what she was doing. So she saw in me what I didn't see in myself. She also opened the door so I could walk through it. And she also helped me overcome all the different things. You know, I, I don't know how to write. Well, there's support. We can, you know, get help with your writing. So I, if it wasn't for her, I don't think I would have ever thought to go into grad school. And it's kind of impacted me in terms of me being a mentor and a sponsor for other individuals through my career progression. So I did go back to my to do my master's after she spoke to me about it and um, got hooked into academia and realized that you could have quite a bit of impact. And that's how my academic life started. So the work that your mentor or coach sponsor demonstrated with you, do you feel that this was general guidance in terms of leading you down this career path? Or was it focused specifically on helping you develop your research career, your particular practice role or direction, or was it more specifically focused on one aspect of your professional trajectory? Um, it's a great question. And I think I've only been able to reflect back on it now after all those years. Her name is Molly. I've recognized her publicly many times. So she, uh, even if she was listening to this podcast, she'd know I'm speaking about her. The things that Molly demonstrate, first, she didn't come into this converse, to the conversation with me with any biases. I didn't have the last name of Brooks. I had a very Arabic last name. So she had no prejudgment of I can do it or not do it because English wasn't my first language or I was new to the country. So she kind of saw beyond that, which is probably one of the things that I felt was a huge obstacle. She also wasn't giving me general advice. She had seen something in me, ability to ask questions, question the evidence in physio, in physiotherapy. And she thought, oh, these are characteristics of someone who would be a good academic. Yeah, the other thing is I do feel she saw possibly that I could play a role in the profession. So that, you know, if we had more researchers, we could really change the evidence base for rehabilitation. So this this is not only a possibly a great opportunity for me, but also a great opportunity for the profession. The other thing that she's great, she was great at is she knew how to navigate, and I didn't know how to navigate. 
And I still had to navigate, but she could at least help me steer in the direction of where I needed to go. So at the time, there was no graduate degree in rehab. So I had to go through physiology. So she told me that, which I wouldn't have known. Physiology didn't recognize Bachelor of Science in Physiotherapy as science. So we had to fight that fight together. She knew where to go for scholarship funds. I still had to write the application, but she could help me that way. So I think, not sure I'm 100% answering the question, but to me, that is just the, the most beautiful example of what a sponsor, mentor, advocate is in all the different ways. You know, they don't do it for you, but they, they help guide you. Yes. And could you elaborate on the different career decisions you made after having been exposed to that support and that mentorship from Molly? Yeah. And it's Molly remained to be my mentor until I took this job. Um, Oh, okay. (laughs) I went and did my master's degree. And after two years, I was burnt out. And I said, I'm not doing a PhD. And she was, um, okay. You know, so I taught and I practiced clinically. And then within two years, she knew it better than I knew it. I would come back and want to do my PhD. So I did my PhD. So that kind of set the career in that direction. But even when I applied for the McMaster job four years ago as the vice dean, and I went through the process, and then I got offered the job, I called Molly because I had such an imposter syndrome and still kind of deal with imposter syndrome that when I got offered the job, my reaction was, I can't do this. There's no way I could be vice dean. I don't have what it takes. And I called Molly and she's the one who said, you are taking this job. There is no question you can do it. Yes. <laughs> so again, just to kind of help me and probably I would have gotten there, but it's so much, it's so helpful to have someone who believes in you. And, you know, can push you a little bit outside your comfort zone, but you know, that's the right direction that you need to go. What a great example you've experienced. And I am so, I would love to know more about Molly's influences and how Molly's experiences shaped the way that she approached mentoring and guiding and sponsoring you. Now, taking that experience from Molly and the guidance that you received how has that impacted the way that you mentor or sponsor or support other faculty? I imagine now in the vice dean role, that's much more at the forefront of your mind in terms of supporting your faculty. But mm-hmm. I don't mean that question to be limited just to the faculty over whom you mm-hmm. see, but also just your faculty mm-hmm. colleagues or colleagues with whom you conduct research. How might mm-hmm. that have impacted? your interactions with them? I'm very aware about playing it forward. But, and I'll talk about professionally in in a minute, but also personally. So I have been part of mentorship for newcomers and refugees to Canada, both when I was in Toronto and more recently when I'm in Hamilton. And I think that shapes a lot of the way I view the world and and see things. It's my chance to give back because I know, I know how hard it was to come here and not speak the language sometimes people don't have a lot of patience. Like there are many times where people will be so frustrated with me because I couldn't express what I wanted to say. And my giving back is just to be this person who actually understands, listens, and can guide, you know, open doors, give advice. So in my personal life, I do that all the time. Uh, Not just me, you know, my parents as well, when the Syrian refugee crisis happened, it also helps when you speak the language, right? That you can support individuals and it makes a difference. 
Professionally, when I took on leadership position, my graduate students were often the way that I tried to act as a mentor, sponsor, and so on. And not just when they became graduate students, but if, if I saw a clinician who had the characteristics of a great graduate student, I would tap them on the shoulder and say, have you considered graduate studies? And there are a couple of faculty here who actually were exactly in that same spot where they hadn't considered it, but you know, we could have the conversation about it. So it was very much through graduate students. It was very much through postdocs. And now in the leadership position here, it's also faculty. And often people don't think of the extra, the many things, you know, how, what award could we nominate you for? You know, when will you go up for promotion? Those questions of kind of keeping things and helping people see the next step for them. As you're talking, I'm reminded of a recent example where we were at an event together and this was to honor one of your faculty in the School of Rehab Sciences. And when I first arrived at the event, the first thing that I noticed was how many of this individual's colleagues were there. And you were there as well, Dina, to support this colleague and to recognize this colleague's work. And my first thought was how amazing that was. And what a mark of your leadership that you not only came, but also that there were so many of this individual's colleagues that also came to recognize her. And so I wanted to share that as an outside observer of one of the examples that I've noticed in how your mentorship approach or how you how you view your role as a leader and a supporter of others has been manifest and observed by others. Thank you. I imagine that your career path has not always been easy accomplishments at every step of the way. And I imagine that there were also difficulties and challenges that you encountered. I wonder if you would mind or feel comfortable sharing about a difficult decision or a challenging situation you may have faced and what you learned from that experience? Yeah, there's a couple that I can think of that really come <laughs> to my mind. Maybe I'll share them both. I remember when I um, applied to physiology, because that was my grad studies, and they didn't recognize the degree. And they said, we're going to admit you as a special student. I always worse them to be a special student. Huh. You're going to have to prove that you can do this. And um, you were going to ask you to take three additional courses from all the other students. And one is coding, one or computers, something related with early coding, one electronics, and one advanced physiology. And the expectations for you to get an A in those courses for you to remain, like it's, you know, you have to prove that you're a scientist. Oh my goodness. <laughs> And, um, you know, I really wanted to quit. I really wanted to quit at that point. And when I started, it was a real struggle. Like it wasn't areas that, you know, as a physio, uh, you would know as a nurse that you know much about these things. But I've learned about myself is that no one will tell me I can't do something. So, you know, I soldiered on, got help, made it happen. And I remember one of the profs, that he said to me, well, I didn't think you were going to make it, but you're pretty feisty. Um <laughs> Um, and I kind of took that as a bit of a criticism, you know, like that was not uh, a kind way of putting it. But I think that was probably one of the biggest academic challenges in my career uh, was that one. I have two others. Sorry, I know it's two. It's, you only asked for one, but it's hard no, for me to figure out. No, three, three is excellent. I love the examples. 
Um, the other one is the first time I had to write a paper in my PhD, and I sent the draft to my incredibly supervisor, PhD supervisor, who was incredible. And uh, he came back, he said, well, that's not very good. <laughs> and I knew it wasn't very good. English was, you know, my third language. I was trying to write science. I couldn't write very well. So I, and I felt so bad because I'd failed him, but I always will remember that he sat beside me and we rewrote that paper together. And probably in that time where he sat beside me for two or three hours and we wrote, I can't remember the intro and the methods or something. I learned more about sentence structure, about English than any English course that I would have taken. So it, yeah, and I always admired that he had the, the patience to actually go through that with me. So yeah, maybe those are my two examples. The third example is a bit of a different one. So early on when I came to Canada and early in my career, I often would not openly state that I was not from Canada or that I had a different background or speak about my background at all. Or, uh, and it was easy because uh, I changed my name to Brooks when I got married. So it, most people wouldn't think that I had a different background. So in 2010, I, was, I received an award from the physiotherapy, um, Canadian Physiotherapy Association. And it was a very prestigious award. And part of the award was that you had to do a talk, an inspirational talk. And I really struggled with what the talk should be about and then chose to actually speak about my background and where I came from and, and to speak about inclusion and the importance of inclusion, importance of the path, importance of the different perspective. And I would say that was really hard. There were so many people in the audience. No one knew my background. Uh, by then, I didn't have an accent, so most people wouldn't have guessed. And not only it, it puts you in a very vulnerable position because you're standing out there saying, you know, all of these things, but it also made me feel very vulnerable because I think people often judge too, right? And they bring their judgment. But I think that was probably the milestone, the very important milestone where I stopped denying my background and actually became proud of where I came from and what I brought with me in a different diverse perspective that I brought to the table. Incredible. Do you know if that presentation or the speech was recorded? Uh, yeah, actually, I have a transcript of it. Yeah, they published it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But interestingly, too, my sons were there. And um, my sons hadn't heard my story, because I think often we don't even share our, our hardships that openly. Yeah. So I mean, they, that was just as important. My, my sister came and my sons were there. So, you know, it was great to also have that moment with my family. Yeah. What was that experience like for you after you gave that speech and processing the effects in, internally of having been so open, revealing parts of yourself to an academic community that perhaps in the past you hadn't revealed. What was that experience like post-presentation? It's, it's interesting because I actually remember a lot of the comments that people made, right? And there were the comments of, you know, goodness, that was so great. It's nice to uh, hear about different perspective or people coming up and saying, oh, I came from here from a different country, or I have this different background. It's nice to see that you can openly speak about it. But I also had some negative comments, not many, but you know how this negative ones stick in your yes. mind, you know, kind of comments of wasn't that too personal to share? Um, was one comment or almost like, 
you got everyone to cry, which wasn't the intent of me to get uh, everyone to cry. Right, <laughs> um, right. Maybe I was being too soft or there was unnecessary softness in an environment where we're supposed to be, um, you know, all, I don't know. You know, the academic environment isn't always the greatest for vulnerability. I feel it in my gut when you're describing that. And I can't even imagine how you were able to sit there and hear this feedback and process it on the spot there. And how did you, how did you work through your emotional response, the, the intellectual response to these comments? I, I recognize that perhaps the uh, more critical responses, their intent is to undermine. And it's so hard to disentangle someone mm-hmm. else's intent to undermine with not taking it personally and then mm-hmm. starting to self-doubt and question mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. What was that process like for you? Uh, you put it so well. <laughs> you put it so well because I think um, you the imposter syndrome is so real, you know, both uh, I think as women, as women who are maybe from an equity deserving group, it's the, the imposter syndrome is huge. And uh, might have heard a hundred positive comments, but the two negative comments yes. increase your imposter syndrome and then, or contribute to the imposter syndrome and then doubt and, you know, what am I doing? And, but I, I think I, at the last 10 years, I have, it's not gone the imposter syndrome, but I feel more confident in not letting all that negative thought undermine me, knowing what my strengths are and where areas of weaknesses are, but still being proud of the path, right? The path of getting here. Yes. So do you feel that it's been a process of recognizing yourself, knowing knowing yourself, so self-awareness, knowing where your strengths are and telling that back to yourself? Is, is that part of the process in terms of recognizing your strengths, affirming yourself in those strengths, as well as recognizing areas where you're continuing to grow? Mm-hmm. And do you feel that that has contributed to a gradual diminishment of that feeling of imposter syndrome? Or do you feel that there are other facets that we may also want to consciously recognize, consciously work on to minimize or diminish those feelings of imposter syndrome? What a great question. I don't know if I know. And I don't know if I'll, I'll, if I'll, and I don't know if I know what are, like, I wish there was a book. This is what you do to get over imposter syndrome. Or maybe it's not about us. I mean, some people have argued that the imposter syndrome is about the organization, right? And so it, unless we change the systems in which we work, we can't really change the feeling of feeling like an imposter. I think now I, I just embrace it. This is who I am. And, um, and when I'm feeling I'm stepping into something that's outside my comfort, just to remember the strengths that I have to overcome obstacles and, yeah, you know, make things happen. Right. You're bringing up a really interesting point because I recognize that my question about how to address imposter syndrome is a bit, um, it's not not entirely fair because I'm phrasing that question as if this is an individual level responsibility. 
that we must recognize when we have imposter syndrome, and then we must do X, Y, and Z to address that, where you're rightly pointing out that it is not only something that we wrestle with at an individual level, and that there are also systems level or contextual cultural level variables that impact on the messages that we receive that tell us that we are not good enough or that we need to be like this or that. So I hear you. And even after I asked the question and listening to your response, I realized that, no, this is not actually the question that we should be asking, which is, how do we get rid of imposter syndrome? But rather, it's perhaps a bit more nuanced to say, okay, this self-perception that I have, I need to recognize what I'm feeling, recognize where that message may be coming from. And if, it is, if it's a message of self-doubt or imposter syndrome, then recognizing, okay, is it because there are areas that I need to continue to grow in? Are there areas that I'm not recognizing, which are strengths that I need to be more willing to recognize and give myself affirmation about that? And also recognizing the messages that our environment sends about what gives us value or what mm -hmm. makes us valid as a person or mm -hmm. an academic or professional. Mm -hmm. So is that more of what you're saying in terms of recognizing context as well as in internal individual level? Yes. And recently I've been thinking about it a little even more different. If I had to look at this issue from the way I feel inside it, someone pointed out to me that maybe I could be more confident. And I think the imposter syndrome makes us maybe feel less confident. But I may not be so confident, but I know I'm very courageous. So I will try. I will go outside my comfort zone all the time. And I will try new things in my professional life and in my personal life. And maybe confidence is overrated and courage is underrated. And right. I, the courage is is great. Like that maybe that's what I should be proud of is that I have the courage to do some of the things. So so now when I I feel not so confident to do something, I think, okay, well, you know, you need to rely on your courage to do it. Yes. I really like that distinction because I hear you. I see that too. Even in our health professions training environments, frequently we focus on telling our learners, be more confident be more confident in your practice or when you engage with patients or when you communicate. Rather, perhaps we need to be rethinking that language and look at this idea of courage and what it means to be courageous in our communication, what it means to be courageous in our clinical practice or how we might encourage our learners to demonstrate that courage. Because demonstrating that courage may mean for them to recognize when they don't know something and to step back and say, I can't do this. Or it may mean that I have my foundational knowledge, skills, and abilities. And so I will be able to take the first couple of steps, but I will also need to ask you to help me with the additional steps. And that's an act of courage. Mm -hmm. While it may not be perceived as, oh, the learner is confident, but they're demonstrating courage in that yeah. moment. That's a great distinction. And I really appreciate how you're identifying the need for 
courage or for us to look at our activities under that lens of uh, courage versus confidence. Now, when I look at you as an, from the outside, as an observer of your career, and as I observe the impact that you're making in the School of Rehab, Rehab Sciences, as well as in your field of physiotherapy and research, I see you as a change maker. And I see you as someone that is changing the game. And yet, I've never asked you directly, how does that resonate with you? Do you feel that that title or descriptor that I've assigned to you resonates with you? And perhaps you consider yourself changing the game in ways that I have not even recognized. What do you think about that? I don't think of myself that way. But and I, I kind of wonder why, because someone described me that way not not long not a long time ago, about a year ago. Um, there's this organization called the Canadian Thoracic Society, um, and it was it's an organization for respirologists and anyone working in the respiratory field. And um, it's always had presidents who have been physicians, and I was the first non-physician female non-physician. Um, and female to be the president of that organization. And when my term ended, someone called me change maker. And I don't know if I, I feel like I haven't consciously said, oh, I am or I'm not. I feel there are good causes and good things that along the way you see as barriers that shouldn't be there. And then you, you, you think, oh, well, we should get rid of these barriers. And you you take the steps and you get rid of the barriers. And I guess in a way it changes the game. But yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a lovely thing to think that we've changed, we've made a difference. I honestly look at it as more one step at a time. You know, what are the things that are unfair? What are the things that don't make sense? And how do we make those changes happen? You know, this was the very example that I was thinking of when I was thinking of you as a game changer, one of the many, but that was one particular one that I didn't want to raise myself. And I wanted to see if that was something that you would have considered as well as a game changing moment. So I'm really glad that you raised that because that's exactly what I was thinking of <laughs> that led me to that question. So when you think about your career so far, and as you reflect back on the, the whole of your career, do you have particular moments that you look back on, you feel that give you the greatest sense of satisfaction or a great sense of achievement or accomplishment? <laughs> I actually had that moment at a conference in April um, and it was a Canadian respiratory conference. And I was there with my graduate students, my, our team, graduate students, postdocs, uh, my colleague, my medical colleague that I often collaborate with. But who else was there was a previous graduate students and PhD students who are now in academic position. And they also had their students there. Um, oh, wow. And it, yeah. And, um, and everyone was in the respiratory field. And we were, we were doing research that was changing the lives of patients with lung disease. And, that, and there was a moment where um, after poster presentations and talks, we took a picture together. It really felt like I am so proud of 
the fact that we have all these people still interested in research and respiratory, still making a difference and now training the next generation. Oh, amazing. And this just happened in April 2023. Yeah. Oh, yeah. great timing too. I'm so glad <laughs> that you had that experience so recently. Yeah. This affirmation. Yes. Yeah. Well, that that's one um one example that I I would consider, oh, others are aware you were all able to uh, cross paths and have this moment of collective sense of joy and accomplishment. I also recognize though, you may be working behind the scenes or taking part in activity or learning or development that others may not recognize that is informing your outward actions and your work. Are there any behind the scenes activities that you do, whether they be um, collaborations that you form or any training or reading, or even perhaps behind the scenes challenges that you've had to navigate that then have allowed you to outwardly act in these game-changing ways? I think you probably can relate to this, Ruth. I think in a lot of aspects of life, um, of and our academic life and our professional life, there has been behind the scene trying to push the fact that um, rehab and nursing are just as equal of a part of the team as everyone else. Um, you know, so I can think of this many, many times, you know, whether it was 20 years ago when we were arguing that a chair of the Canadian Respiratory Conference could be a non-physician. Um, and eventually we, we convinced people that, yes, it could be a non-physician. When I was part of the Canadian Academy for Health Sciences, and we were arguing that we need more rehab to be nominated and to the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences, more nursing, more other more diverse groups. Uh, so it does, in a lot of ways, it does feel that th that has been a path for me. I wouldn't say, you know, I'm, I, I don't see myself as a warrior and I'm here to prove that um, rehab's worthy or nursing is worthy, but uh, I see myself as when inequities happen, when things aren't fair, when people are not being valued, then it's, we need to make a change and we need to, to do it. And I, I, I tend to do it in a very nice collaborative way because I think we're, maybe I've been taught to be nice all the time, <laughs> or maybe it's a great way of doing things. Um, yes. You know, so I would describe my style in trying to make these changes as very collaborative. Although sometimes inside I'm fuming, right? I'm mad. And, yeah. you know, when there are scholarships or, you know, I remember being part of the CIHR advisory board and arguing about different levels of scholarship for different people and how do you, how do you make equity in that? And that kind of issues, they make me very upset on the inside, but I try to kind of keep that, you know, moving forward and, and staying calm and making change happen. It's really helpful to hear that because sometimes, well, frequently we don't see what's going on under the surface. And so to know that these situations are generating internal I don't want to say turmoil because not all situations are that um, uh, emotionally wrought, but it's generating some dissonance internally that you are then, you're identifying ways to change the narrative or change perceptions by the way that you present those issues publicly or the way that you go about asking questions 
to challenge the predominant narrative. So I think it's helpful to know that there are these internal struggles that you also wrestle with. One of the purposes that we had in creating this podcast subseries is also to provide encouragement and inspiration for our learners, our junior faculty members, or those that are still deciding in their early days of their career what they would like to do and who they might want to be. And so my final question is, do you have any insight or advice that you'd like to share with others who are just starting their professional journeys? I think the one thing that I would have been fundamental for me, and I don't think I realized it till a little in in my career, is to be completely authentic of who you are. And that authenticity is the most valuable characteristic. You know, uh, authentic to your own values, authentic in your responses. And there's this feeling uh, where we have to try and be we have to impress, we have to behave in a certain way, we have to come across as we're knowledgeable. We always need to know the answers. We can always defend things. Uh, and often we can, but I think it's okay to be also be authentic when you can and when you can't. And that would be my, my advice, authentic to the person that you are. Uh, for me, you know, I think when I did that talk about my background, I became, I was very authentic and that feels a much better place to be than not to be authentic. I really like that because it actually connects very nicely to your previous comments about courage. And I would even say that one of my big takeaways from our conversation is that authenticity is courage, or perhaps if I had some more time to think about it, there is a some sort of directional causal connection between authenticity and courage. In that I would even, I would, I wonder if as we develop authentically and as we express ourselves authentically, that is a demonstration of courage and that development or that growth in courage allows us to be more authentic in our professional lives as well. Would you say that there's a connection between the two, authenticity and courage? I hadn't thought about it, but I really can see the connection now that you've pointed it out. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to give that a bit more thought, but I, I do think they are, they go together. You have to have the courage to be authentic. Right. You feel the need to then present an inauthentic self in order to be, whether it be accepted or in order to fit in with these externally composed or externally imposed constraints. Thank you very much, Dina. It was really nice to have this conversation with you. And I really appreciate your wisdom and the insights that you've shared through our conversation. Great to to have this conversation. I, I learned just as much from talking to you. They were great questions. Thanks for tuning in to the Game Changers podcast subseries. We send a quick shout out to our sound engineer, Lori He. This program is brought to you by McMaster's Education Research Innovation and Theory Program, Merit, and the Program for Faculty Development. Be sure to tune in to our future episodes.